Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. And welcome back. I'm so excited to welcome our next two guests. We, we always talk about on this show how change, any kind of change you see in America, never comes from politicians. It always comes from citizens who have a lot of hard work, who don't ever get appreciated, but they're people who care about making a positive difference. So I was so excited to hear our next guests had agreed to join us. Now, you may have heard of Urban Future Centers. It's an initiative aimed at closing equity gaps through social impact partnerships and investments in community-based organizations. It's made up of four different Black-led Milwaukee-based community orgs that are dedicated to building power in underserved communities that are most impacted by racism and economic racism. This year, they launched the STEAM and DREAM National City Tour, which works to prepare Black and Latino students for careers in STEM through engaging programming. And then they've hosted summits in Atlanta and Milwaukee. And it's an incredibly positive, incredibly exciting, inspiring thing about how careers in tech are made real for young people. Kenji Adams is CEO and founder of Connect Business Consulting. She has over 20 years of experience planning, managing, and implementing tech and community-based projects for Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, and community-based organizations. Nadia Johnson is currently pursuing her PhD with a focus on computer science and mental health. Her passion for diversity in STEM led her to launch her company, Jet Constellations, which is a local software company. Nadia is a recent Milwaukee Business Journal 40 Under 40 honoree. And together, they are working with a program that is truly changing lives with a model that I'm hoping starts getting a lot more national attention. Ladies, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you both. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yes, I'm here. Thank you. So uh, let me begin with the most obvious question. How do two women in the corporate world like, like yourselves find yourselves working on a project like this? Aren't you supposed to be all focused on your own bottom line and building up your resume? Uh, how did Urban Future Centers come to be a part of your lives? That's a great question. Um, so yes, I, I definitely started my career um, in, in corporate. And one of the reasons why I started my social impact arm, Milky Way Tech Hub, was because of some of the things that I was witnessing in the corporate arena, lack of representation across the board, mentorship and the executive space. And I wanted to see a difference um, and more representation of black and brown people in, in tech specifically. And so eventually that led me to start my own venture, um, Jack Constellations and the Milky Way Tech Hub. And um, that led us to partner with American Family. And, and from there, um, we've been able to align our work. And over time, Urban Future Centers was born. Yep. 
and then and I'm jumping. I'm Kenji Adams, and so I also my background is in corporate, and I've been a project manager in the corporate space for almost twenty years. And I started Connect Business Consulting because I, in addition to working in corporations, I've been in various organizations and communities, and I decided to bridge and help organizations who don't normally have project management experience actually implement their community programs and also be that translator between corporations and nonprofits so that way they can show their results and, and be able to continue their funding. So, and then Nadia and I met while I was working for a company and we also yep. partnered on other projects mm-hmm. even before we started our STEAM and Dream program, which is also started by um, and funded by um, American Family Insurance with another one of our one of our partners, Joanne Sabir from uh, Sherman Phoenix and AmFam, who really brought us together and helped us continue this going forward. And what's interesting um, is that I believe I took my leap into entrepreneurship a little bit before Kenji. And somehow yes. I was in her workplace and I ran into her on her very last day. in the lobby and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do me. <laughs> and she's like, okay, I got you. And so, um, yeah, ever since then we've been busy. I've helped her with her organization and she's helped me with mine. And then we've collaborated and we started something that was initially small, just passing out laptops during COVID that AmFam helped support to now um, I'm helping the project manage our STEAM and program that's across uh, four states. So we're having these summits and we bring in celebrities like we brought in Jacob Lattimore last weekend in Chicago and we bring in um, Earn Your Leisure. We brought in other people and notables to speak to kids and we give them an experience. So it's not just sitting in Mm-hmm. And just in a room, like we have a live DJ, we have talks, we give out swag, we have t-shirts. Like it's, we want the kids to have an experience when we leave. So we've just been really fortunate to have their support and be able to deliver that. I have to say the Steam and Dream model is is really amazing to me because what you do is essentially kids feel like they're getting a day out of school. It's it's this big event that's <laughs> yeah. a lot of fun and it's yeah. helping young people exploring like, you know, engineering and math and science and design, but it's really exploring the technology fields themselves. You really have just tricked kids into going to a really fun jobs workshop yeah. and learning yeah, about and entrepreneurship. They, and they need exactly. like yeah. Oh, go, go ahead, Nadia, because we had Ian Brock there, too, as well, last weekend. Yeah, I think that's the special part, right, is I think when people hear the word summit, they think about adult engagement. Um, but uh, we bring these youth in, and um, they're able to kind of experience, some sometimes for the first time, what it's like to kind of be a part of a conference, right? And mm-hmm. so we, we definitely uh, make it an experience, as Kenji mentioned, um, coupling it with, you know, their interests, um, but also, you know, prioritizing, giving them as much exposure to different careers across financial literacy, um, computer science, tech, innovation, entrepreneurship. And there's also that angle of health and wellness as well, which oftentimes gets um, neglected in those spaces. Yep. And then they also get to meet um, kind of celebrities. So they get to have a picture taken with Jacob Lattimore, who was there. We got to hear, mm-hmm. we had um, Earn Your Leader did a, a, a separate, just little group with just high schoolers talking about entrepreneurship as well as a session with parents. So, and all of this is free. So all the kids in the community from all areas of the city um, are come, they get to come for free and experience this day. 
Now, I know that there was a big investment from American Family that allowed these organizations to come together and, and do what Urban Future Centers does. But I, I find this so amazing as a, as a touring opportunity because it seems like the whole idea is to just bring technology and education and the knowledge that jobs can be found in these fields mm -hmm. to Milwaukee's most densely populated inner city neighborhoods. I'm curious, what was the turnout like? It was excellent. Um, so every every single uh, one of our summits um, has amazing turnouts. I think this last time, Kenji, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, we had something close to 200 students, right? Yeah, we had about 200. We hosted 200 students at the Science and Industry Museum in Chicago, and um, it was great. And we we, we were also worked. One thing that AmFam, I, I really love what they do is they don't just donate a check and leave. So yeah. they partnered and they really put their funds in the community. So these, so these community groups, these um, groups that organize, you know, youth groups in like Old Block and different parts of the city actually brought that one group brought in about 50, 60 kids just from the one part of Chicago. And then we also marry it with, you know, middle, middle class kids and just different kids from all different areas. So all of these kids are working together and partnering and learning from each other mm. and growing. So it's a really beautiful, beautiful sight. And um, you just leave energized, like you're exhausted, but yet energized at the end of the day. So it's, it's, it's great. And I'd add that Urban Future Centers, I think the name of the game is investment, right? So you mentioned, um, you know, there was a, a huge investment in um, local Milwaukee organizations, 1.2 right. million uh, to be exact. And uh, the, the whole part of having this national summit, a, a traveling summit, if you will, um, is to sort of replicate that model, as Kenji is mentioning, right? Um, what does it look like to go into these different cities and invest in other organizations or local organizations in those cities and pull them into the collaborative efforts? So, yes, um, the main partners of Urban Future Centers are there helping to facilitate, but we're also activating organizations in those cities exactly. as well. And exactly. Them. Huge. Yeah. I was going to say, because um, the main thing is just like we're saying, it's it's economic equity and being able to um, help those areas. So that's what we want to do is just come into town and have this great event and leave. So that way, this way, the kids have resources, they have connections. And then so they have some place that they can grow and ask questions and follow up with at a later time. So that's what I think is also unique about this. Well, also, it's just it's it's so corporate and civic life coming together to try to do something that's overall not just moral, but profoundly good for local economies. I mean, it's just it's win win. OK, okay. we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. I'd like to ask you, I guess this might seem like a dumb question, but why is it important to teach young people like this about things like financial literacy and building wealth? Yeah, I, I, um, I think that it's, it's so important to educate the youth on uh, financial literacy so that as they, they grow up, they know how to navigate the world, right? Um, I, I'm a big fan of tech, so I'll speak from the, the tech perspective, which is one of the main things that we focus on um, within each summit tech and um, in finance that's now in the future, right? And it impacts how we navigate society. And in order for us to ensure that our young ones come out ahead, we have to be able to take the time and invest resources, invest um, as much as we can into these communities so that we're setting them up or positioning them to win. Yeah. And I think it's also important, like they always say, you know, you can't be what you can't see. So we do try to bring in, you know, younger people. It's like we had Jacob Lattimore, who's from Milwaukee. And so he came to our Milwaukee summit and talked about what it was like for him in Milwaukee and then his journey. And then Ian Brock, who's a 16-year-old entrepreneur who's from Chicago, we had him come to Chicago and talk about, you know, how did how did he grow and what did he do too? So it's not just it's like 40, 50-year-olds, you know, talking to kids. It's, it's also their peers too. So they can, it helps them relate a little bit too. And I also think, you know, when I was in high school, there definitely wasn't a whole lot of financial literacy. (laughs) Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. And I wish that I was getting um, this level of uh, access to programming and exposure to different celebrities um, to to get me ready for the real world. And the reality is that technology is is changing so much uh, in every single industry. And it's it's important for uh, our youth to understand that they can play an active role in the innovation economy. And so bringing in individuals like Earn Your Leisure to show them what it looks like to monetize their brilliance and not just to play a passive Mm -hmm. role in technology, right? So our youth know how to use the apps, right? But do they know how to monetize? Do they know how to make their own podcast? Do they know how to monetize brilliance? And that's really what we educate them on throughout the summits. The other thing we do is, um, Nadia, you do your... um your venture capitalist pitch competition. So at our summit in Atlanta, we we had uh, Roshan Williams come. And he also was a professor, not only is he brilliant, he's also from Chicago and he's also a professor at Morehouse and the, the ands go on, but he was also there to talk to the kids and the kids were actually able to pitch an actual product and, yep. and be able to um, win prizes that um, based on the programming that Rashawn and Nadia put together. So it's also creating access to and, and, and mentoring. That's the key, right? Is helping them to realize that, yes, you have the brilliant billion dollar idea in your head and um, giving them a platform to pitch, to sort of realize their product, get it to that minimum viable product version and uh, to pitch for funding is, is something that a lot of them wouldn't have exposure to without this level of programming. It's totally brilliant, and, and you're also really inspiring the next generation of leaders as well for both corporate and community service. That's right. I'm curious, to both of you, how, how did your experience separately in the, in the corporate world equip you for this kind of work? I think it, it, it inspired me more than anything. Um, 
you know, I, I think just as I mentioned earlier, observing the lack of representation, observing the disparities, the lack of equity in corporate America, um, I, I, I knew that I wanted to make a change. And, um, you know, being being a part of corporate America for just four years. That was enough for me to be like, I'm out because I got to make a difference. And so uh, yeah. what I do believe, though, is that, um, you know, you know, corporate um, ha- has a role in a driving equity. And American Family is really spearheading this model of what it looks like for corporations to partner with community-led, Black and Brown-led organizations to drive yep. solutions, to drive progress in our communities. Yeah. And what led me was when I worked at, um, you know, in large corporations, I started working with partners. So I started working with other organizations. And then one thing I thought of, too, was like, especially as a project manager, you know, I've, I've been a project manager for years and they always tell us these triple constraints. And it's like you, either budget, time, so I've always kind of worked and lived in a box or a triangle. And one thing right. I've learned through this whole experience is throwing that model as far as like the, the, and, the or into the and. So I basically started living my life as an and. And I, and especially, and this comes from the leadership and all of the great people at AmFam and our other partnering, um, Joanne Sabir, she like lives in that and. And it's like, cause literally she called me and Nadia one day during COVID and it's like, we have to do something. The kids don't have school. We don't have, I mean, they don't have laptops. What can we do? And then it grew. And then next thing we wow. know, you know, we literally started passing out laptops out of chunks of cars and they were calling Joanne personally to pick them up. Like that's where we started. And then she's like, what about celebrity? And what about experiences? And what about, and I'm like, okay, I'll write it up. Let's come up with a plan. Let's come up with a strategy. And so we just kind of all have our own little special, um, you know, expertise and we make it happen. Like um, beyond our like wildest imagination over the last probably almost two years that this has grown. I'm glad that you mentioned that, Kenji, though, because that's a great a great example of why American Family, in my head, has been set apart from so many other corporations because um, it, it's the level of urgency that they seem to understand, right? That this is not, um, a, you know, racial equity and racial justice is not something where they're just to sit around a table and talk right. about it, but they're actually right. about action, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I remember the phone call, right, right, yeah. right during like the onset of, of the pandemic and mm-hmm. Joanne was like, we got to do something. And we in fact did. And, and this is the result of it. And we did it in a month because I, I managed the project plan and I go back and I look at those old slides and from like the activation from passing out. I think we started with like 50 laptops. We ended up giving out six, over 600 laptops. No way. Nadia created a four-week online curriculum, and we had it. We already had it um, sent out, on, and so kids on the north side of um, Milwaukee were, were programming at home. And some teachers didn't even have laptops and came by and picked up laptops. So we most like amazing. when they say mobilize, they trust us, and they just and they're like, "You do you, you you figure it out, and, and you go." And I think and that's they trusted really it, and they and they trusted it to people in the community to administer the program. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I got to say, the model. I, I hope New York catches up with Milwaukee someday. Ah, um, yeah. <laughs> yes. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> what are the future? What are the future steam and dream summits that are planned? Which ones do you have scheduled? Where are you going next? 
So our next stop is Phoenix, Arizona in October. So we're, and so for that, we're actually going to be partnering with um, a lot of folks in the Hispanic community because that's where um, AmFam has a great presence and we have a lot of partners that are already being supported by AmFam. So we have another partner on our team, name's Maritza, and she has lots of connections in Phoenix. So that'll be our next thing. And then one other thing we do is we talk about partnerships. I mean, it's down to the t-shirts. Like I literally, all of our t-shirts were designed by black and brown artists. All of the catering is by black and brown people. I mean, so we really give back and we, we're very intentional. We have black and brown DJs. And so in Phoenix, we're gonna have uh, a Latino DJ, you know? So it's gonna be an experience for the kids. It's like, kind of like for the kids, by the kids kind of a thing where right on. they feel comfortable and engaged. So let me ask then, what are your long-term goals for Urban Future Centers? Where would you like to see this expand and, and how would you like to see it grow? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think um, the main thing to um, really focus in on is the fact that Urban Future Center is not just meant for uh, the city of Milwaukee, right? The idea is that we're creating a, a replicable model uh, that we're able to span across the, the entire nation. And we're able to do that uh, right now through these, um, you know, tra- through this traveling summit. But eventually, you know, I, I'd love to see um, STEAM and DREAM programming being carried out uh, b- between as many cities as possible. And Kendra, I'd like to um, pull you in to share your vision as well. Yeah, so um, yeah, so actually we'd like to expand on our model because um, in addition to tech, we also have so we also have social and emotional wellness. So in addition to all the other workshops, we got to mention that we ran about six or seven weeks of social emotional programming with practitioners in Milwaukee. So we started off virtual and then when the world opened up a little bit, we went in person and then we went back to virtual and you know, we kind of, yeah. we go as we come and then we, yeah. And then, and then a lot of those practitioners and those people and professionals that we work with are also the ones that we recruit for the summits mm-hmm. and everybody, and we believe in giving back. So the profession, so we don't ask people to really volunteer. We do have people volunteer their time, but we also want to appreciate people and compensate them for their time and their expertise. Right and so we also make sure that we, I mean, you're not going to obviously get rich doing this, but it is like, we at least, we at least <laughs> want to show point. you that we appreciate that you're appreciative <laughs> of you and we give you a platform and we give you, you know, we, we, we really want to um, honor what you do. So we try to make sure that we post about you and share mm-hmm. photos and, um, you know, that kind of thing too. So people can really use this also as a springboard for their own professional, um, I, you know, services I, I, too. And I just got to say, I know no one's going to get, you're not going to get rich off of this, but there will be young people because of these yeah. programs. There will be young yeah. people we can't even count yeah. who will be able to have a better quality of life than their parents did because of programs like this that show and them the way to we've had kids go. come back. I think, Nadia, I think you had a student that was in you, one of your... Dream classes that went on to college. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely have students that continue to re-engage with our programming. And, you know, John, you said something earlier that you you want New York to catch up to Milwaukee, right? And I think that as we look look and start to think about the future of um, UFC or Urban Future Centers, uh, the hope is that more corporations kind of... Um, catch wind of what's happening, right? And are inspired and carry out, out similar models because that's what's needed in order for us to really make that sustainable change. Yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely. It's it's so inspiring. I, I thank you both for this. Uh, Kenji Adams and, and Nadia Johnson, how can our listeners learn more about the two of you and the work you're doing? Yeah, you can go to MilkyWayTechHub.com um, and click the Steam and Dream tab to learn more about the collective work uh, of me and Kenji um, and American Family. Um, and then I'll uh, pass it to you, Kenji, to share more about Connect Business Consulting. Yeah. Yep, and you can go to ConnectBusinessConsulting.com. We have a website, and then you can also... Um, you see me on my LinkedIn at Kenji Adams. Um, you can just search me on LinkedIn. And then we also post like a lot of our events. We post, we I just posted some um, clip of an interview that we had. So we actually had media. So Channel 7 in Chicago came. I think Fox 32 in Chicago did, did um, some interviews. So it's just great that we're able to kind of get our word out there and people can see what's what's possible in our community. It's so amazing to learn about this. Uh, Nadia Johnson, Kenji Adams, thank you both so much for all the work you do with Urban Future Centers. We cover a lot of politics on this show, and I have to thank the two of you. You make me proud to be an American. Say that too often. Thank you. There you go. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. And welcome back. So we've been talking a lot, obviously, about all the different activists and journalists and politicians who are working to try to find solutions for the gutting of Roe v. Wade. But at the same time, we need to talk about all the anti-abortion groups that are not content with getting Roe v. Wade, but are trying to find ways to scale back the rights of women in all 50 states. The National Right to Life Committee drafted and circulated this, what they call model legislation, sort of like ALEC, where they'll just cut and paste this and send it around to state legislatures and say, go ahead and pass this. But under the National Right to Life Committee's proposed legislation, uh, it would prohibit aiding and abetting any American seeking an abortion, including by, quote, hosting or maintaining a website that encourages or facilitates efforts to obtain an illegal abortion, which means you could say this could be done to criminalize news organizations. This could be done to criminalize journalism that just posts stories about abortions 
on their website. And this campaign to end abortion this way is gathering speed across the country. We're seeing conservatives pushing state-level laws that could threaten more press freedoms. So Mother Jones and Rewire News Group have spearheaded a letter to Merrick Garland directly asking the DOJ to protect journalists from this anti-abortion legislation that is criminalizing or seeking to criminalize reporting on abortion. This letter was signed by 26 different news outlets, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, and I'm so pleased to welcome both Galena Espinoza, the president and editor-in-chief of Rewire News Group, uh, and Jonna Berry, chief operating officer at Mother Jones. Uh, before Mother Jones, Jonna was head of content operations at Wired. Ms. Berry, Ms. Espinosa, what an honor to welcome you both. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank really you. nice to be here. Thank you both. I'm, I'm so honored and inspired by what you've done. Let me ask, begin with the most obvious question. What was it that spearheaded this effort? Uh, it's the sort of dynamic that we haven't even had time to think about yet. It, it seems like we're getting new abortion horror stories a couple times a week. I will confess that this is a dynamic that had never even occurred to me in spite of all these bounty laws that are out there. What was it for each of you that first made you realize this was a very real concern? The thing that made this such a concern for us at Mother Jones is that we, like Rewire, have been following the uh, repeal of Roe v. Wade really closely. And one of the things that um, actually harks back to pre-Roe v. Wade is that there used to be laws that used to uh, limit what information could be disseminated about contraception and abortion. And now that Roe v. Wade has been repealed, uh, the Conservative forces that want to bar the right to abortion also want to bar our ability to even talk or transmit any information about abortion. And we've always lived in a country that really treasured the right of a free press and most importantly, for people to access the information that they need about their health for themselves and their families. And we saw how this could be just an incredible threat, not only to the press, but also to ordinary citizens who just want to access information. I think freedom of the press is one of those rights that people take for granted and don't even think about because, of course, it is enshrined in the Constitution. But you know what? So was Roe v. Wade. And what the Supreme Court did with its decision um, in the Dobbs case that came at the end of June was essentially say there is no constitutional right to abortion anymore. And that this was an unprecedented decision because it overturned nearly 50 years of, um, of abortion being you know, considered part of the Constitution and the Constitution's protections. And so it's not really a surprise that um, that the anti-forces would start to think about other constitutional protections, other rights that we have always taken for granted and assumed were protected because the Constitution says so. Um, But it is alarming to see how quickly they have mobilized and moved forward um, with such a very specific recommendation. And I think it's because um, they're really trying to spread fear. There is there is chaos right now. Right. There's legal chaos. There's healthcare chaos. There's cultural chaos. And and, you know, creating chaos in the media is is yet another um, part of their long term strategy. I agree. And it's very targeted 
chaos. It's very uh, precise chaos, and it's very targeted fear. We began the show talking about different political efforts that we're seeing now that are coercive in nature, where rather than top-down authoritarianism, rather than the state doing it, it allows or enables or encourages ordinary citizens to violate the rights of others. Ron DeSantis' Don't Say Gay bill, for example. Of course, any teacher is still allowed to say gay. It just makes it very easy for anyone to sue any teacher for any reason for saying any words they don't like. And it seems like it's sort of a, a grassroots kind of authoritarianism. I mean, if, if news orgs are vulnerable in states where they have offices or if they're vulnerable in states where they have employees that just live and pay taxes there, it certainly seems like this is another kind of fear tactic because... I would imagine a lot of organizations, especially small independent groups that can't afford legal fees, can't afford fines, are terrified of actual jail time from local yahoos. I mean, isn't it conceivable that some organizations would just choose to not publish stories about abortion? It's so interesting that you bring that up. I actually interviewed a few First Amendment attorneys for a column I wrote this week to explain to our readers why we were taking part in this effort. And one of them told me that as soon as these laws start passing, even if it's just in one state, uh, the law is really broadly written. So even if an organization, a person is not in South Carolina, say they're sitting in California, they're sitting in Chicago, if they produce information that's seen or heard by someone in South Carolina and they decide to have an abortion, they could be prosecuted by under the law, even though they're not in that state. And so he said, the attorney told me that as soon as these laws start passing, it will have a chilling effect. There are small organizations that will just decide, or individuals, it's too risky. So even if this law passes only in one state, it will probably immediately start to have an impact on what kind of information is available in other parts of the country. And the vagueness of the wording is a deliberate part of the strategy. We saw this last fall when Texas passed SB8, its bounty hunter law that you know extended beyond patients and providers. And it said anyone who is found to have helped someone get an abortion, well, what does help actually mean? And what if that person traveled to another state and someone in that state helped the person get an abortion? Can they go after the person in a separate state. I mean, these are all questions that, again, are contributing to this chaos and that eventually will be resolved in the legal system. But by that point, lives will be damaged. Media organizations will be bankrupt. I mean, the harm that is going to be caused, the harm that we're already seeing caused, um, it's really cruel. There's no other word for it. I mean, if conceivably an article quoted people who work at a place that provides abortion services. If an article talked to an expert who explained to the journalist how one would seek to order pills for chemical at-home abortions, it, it is conceivable that someone could actually sue the journalist, the publisher, and even the domain host for putting this information out there. A hundred percent. Does even just printing the word abortion fall under this very vague, broad definition of aiding and abetting? Are we allowed to talk about it 
at all. And I think that anytime you see that kind of attempt to shut down conversation and information um, that has a direct impact on people's lives, we should all be deeply, deeply concerned. And I think it's really important to remind people that abortion is a very common part of women's reproductive lives and journeys. One out of every four women will have an abortion by the age of 45. That's 25 percent of women. Um, This is not a niche issue. Issue. This is not something that does not affect. This is one in four. You know, if you're in a room with four women, one of them has had an abortion. Um, you know, there's that slogan. We've all, we all know someone and love someone who's had an abortion. Well, it really is true. This, the statistics tell us that. Um, so the implications of this cannot be overstated. Thank you. Yes, we got to hit a break. We'll be right back. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We are back. In either of your journalistic careers, have you ever had occasion to try to get allies to join you to uh, write a joint letter to a U.S. attorney general? Uh, For Mother Jones, this is the first time for us, but we felt that this was such a serious, serious, troubling uh, model legislation moving forward. We thought it was imperative that this is something that we needed to get on the radar of the Department of Justice right away. And we were so thrilled. We've been working in partnership with Mother Jones around um, some of our editorial work. And we were so thrilled when they wanted to partner on this idea, because this really is a time for media outlets to stand together. And we were so encouraged by the response we got from folks who are not necessarily associated with um, coverage of reproductive um, rights and justice issues, you know, because they're recognizing the threat to all media organizations. And we also have several outlets that are dedicated to the protection of journalists, like the Committee to Protect Journalists and PEN America signing on as well, really sending a message that this is something that everyone um, who cares about a free press, who believes that freedom of the press is vital to a functioning, healthy democracy, needs to be not only aware of, but paying attention to. Let me ask how you went about approaching the various media entities that were your co-signers on this, because I'm curious if any entities said no, you don't have to say who, but I'm very curious if that happened and what kind of response you got. It's a very, and and you're right. I don't really think of the radio, television, digital news association being uh, uh, avatars of, of freedom for abortion rights providers. What went into this process of selection? 
Um, well, I think um, from our perspective, it was actually very easy to get people to sign on to this. I think the reality of the past, you know, four years, eight years has really shown how um, democratic norms have really eroded in this country. And journalism organizations who have, you know, maybe in the past, maybe would have had more of a wait and see um, perspective on some of these changes um, really saw the clear and present danger right away. And so it was actually very easy to get people to participate in this. Yeah, I would second that. We were able to move really quickly with this. And we had a lot of discussion about what the right timing for this letter would be. Um, but we felt really strongly we needed to get out with it now because we have to take a proactive stand. South Carolina has already submitted a pre-file of this model legislation. So, you know, this is a thing we're talking about. Hypothetically, this could happen, yeah. except one state has already taken an actual step toward making it happen. Um, and we uh, can imagine that that's most likely only the first time that we're going to see this. So, you know, we felt really strongly it was important to get the Justice Department's eyes on this, um, to get folks engaged and aware um, before this starts to to gain any sort of momentum. It's hideous. It's like coat hanger Alec. They're just giving the the legislation to copy and paste uh, for for different states. And the list of organizations that joined Mother Jones and Rewire, just to name a few, BuzzFeed News signed on to this letter, HuffPost, The Intercept, The Nation, The American Prospect, The New Republic, Center for Public Integrity, Salon, New York News Publishers Association, Media Matters for America. It, It is really inspiring. What were the main specific requests you had of Attorney General Garland? Well, it's not unheard of for the Department of Justice to intervene in states where they have created laws that overstep constitutional protections. And so it's our aim to have the Department of Justice uh, to, one, firmly state that um, organizations have the right to publish information about abortion without fear of prosecution in other states. Um, But also, too, we don't have to wait until this law passes. Merrick Garland could say something right now to help protect and shield journalists uh, from laws coming into effect. And I think that, you know, for folks who work in this space, um, again, there is that sense of urgency. I think, you know, there has definitely within the reproductive rights movement been a lot of frustration with the current administration around its reluctance to say the word abortion, to take action, to even note what was happening. You know, the Supreme Court announced in May of 2021 that it was going to be hearing the Dobbs case. There was a year where we knew that this was going to be the case that ended the constitutional right to abortion. This was not a surprise. It was very clear when they agreed to take that case. And I think we're seeing, you know, the, 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 the just how widespread the damage has been from folks not saying, okay, we need to start you know, raising our voices and pushing back against this and noting the seriousness of it. And I think we cannot afford to make that mistake again, not when constitutional protections are on the line. Thank you. Yes, there was a pandemic playbook and we never used it, but there was no end of row playbook and we had a year plus to get ready for it. You know, not to be too paranoid, but it does seem like contraception is at play here. Not just because of what Clarence Thomas said, but if this is the way they're going to be doing it, and we know the way these things go, and we know that, if I may, these Christians aren't interested with what's actually in the Bible, couldn't we be having this same conversation about protecting journalism 
from people waging lawsuits over giving contraceptive advice to? I think that's totally a real fear. And that fear actually comes from lived experience for Mother Jones. You know, in 2015, we spent and our insurance company spent $3 million to defend ourselves against a lawsuit brought by a wealthy conservative organization, a wealthy conservative individual who did not agree with the way he was depicted in the story. Even though we eventually prevailed, it was a huge commitment of resources for us. And so just even to think about a news organization that has to defend its reporter or defend its sources against a criminal prosecution in one of these states, it could be ruinous. And these are lawsuits, these are legal actions that um, could shut down an organization that does not have the resources. And that's one of the reasons why we feel so strongly about this. And certainly birth control is the next, um, you know, next stage in this war against um, reproductive freedom. We're already seeing states um, talking about banning IUDs, talking about banning Plan B, because the other thing that a lot of those um, folks, conservative folks don't necessarily understand is how biology works. Uh, Um, uh, You uh, know, uh. they conflate using an IUD or using plan B with abortion, which is 100 percent not. And so, you know, we're seeing so much misinformation around different methods of birth birth control. We are seeing attacks and, and attempts to limit access to birth control. And going all the way back to 1873 in the Comstock Act, that was an anti-obscenity law that specifically prohibited the dissemination of information about birth control. And for folks who think like, okay, but that was like 1873, I will just point out it took almost 100 years before the Supreme Court actually recognized that people, single people could talk about birth control. That was in a 1972 case. So, you know, the threat is not only very real, but it has um, a potential to be very, very long lasting. I mean, we're talking about like a generational impact that could result again if we're not proactive and if we're not drawing a line in the sand now and saying that this is wrong. I have one last question, and it's something that really inspired me, but it seems kind of daunting. In your specific request of the attorney general, you ask him to intervene if any state enacts such a law by using the Department of Justice's authority to halt the overall law from taking effect or provisions that may punish news organizations and reporters. I agree, but what might that look like? How do we unpack that kind of request? Well, there's already precedence for this. So the Department of Justice actually sued the state of Idaho to stop its new anti-abortion law. And then it also intervened in the state of Alabama to uh, stop an anti-trans law. So this is something that's part of the playbook and something that the Department of Justice does. And I think it's also a message that we want to leave people with. I think so many people in this moment are feeling helpless, are feeling like there's nothing that can be done there's actually a lot that can be done. And it's on us to demand that the folks who represent us um, and are supposed to uphold our constitutional rights are doing what we need them to do. What is the best way for our listeners to learn more about this letter and the uh, crusade behind it? And how do we follow well, both can- of you? How do our listeners follow both of you and your work? <laughs> 
well, absolutely. They can go to Mother Jones's website. That's um, motherjones.com. Or um, if they want to find us on social media, we're at Mother Jones on the social media networks. Uh, my name is John Aberry. You can follow me on Twitter at, at John Aberry on Twitter. Yes, and we have both jointly published um, the letter on our respective homepages. So either motherjones.com or rewirenewsgroup.com. And of course, you know, everywhere on all the socials where, where the kids are these days is where you can find us. So please do check us out because this is only the beginning. You know, these are, you know, initial steps that are being taken. We expect it to get a lot, lot worse um, and to get a lot, lot worse really quickly. So this is a time and a moment. I know everyone's exhausted and there's a lot of news fatigue. Uh, This is not the time to take a rest. Not at all. And I thank you both for giving me an all new thing to freak out about. I do earnestly, <laughs> sincerely appreciate Sweet it. Sweet dreams and, tonight, John. <laughs> well, no, but but I but at the same time, look, I, th- I, I think that despondency is privilege. I don't get to despair anymore. There's that's a luxury I can't do. I'm so inspired by the fact that we're seeing Rewire News Group and Mother Jones team up to me. This is like the Avengers. I'm all for it. So I thank you both for creating this axis of decency. Galena Espinoza, president and editor in chief of Rewire News Group. John and Barry, Chief Operating Officer of Mother Jones. So honored to have you both. Please come back and see us again anytime. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Have a great evening. This is Progress. Progress.